Good evening. Welcome to From the Frontline. It's Peter Hammond in the studio. And tonight I have guest Chris White from Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Cape Town. Well, Dr. Hammond, it's a pleasure to be here and see you in person. You've been a guest on my program. And it's, uh, of course, we did it the way everything's being done these days by Zoom across the oceans. But now I'm here in person. Thank you very much. Outstanding. So just a few words of introduction for any of our listeners who don't know who Chris Weiss is. He's a retired U.S. Army military intelligence officer and foreign affairs officer for sub-Saharan Africa. And he was director of the African studies at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Previously, Senior Military Advisor to the U.S. Mission to the African Union, and he served in Germany, Italy, the Balkans, Levant, uh, Southeast Asia, Southwest Asia, and he's had assignments in Tunisia, Liberia, Botswana, Malawi, Nigeria, Mauritania, Uganda, and Ethiopia. I don't see... Um, yes, Liberia is mentioned. Yeah, I think you had to rebuild the army. That's correct. And uh, his tours in Africa include a Senior Defense Representative and Security Assistance Officer and Attaché Assignments, and... Alton author. So, Chris, good to have you here. First of all, give us some insight into some of your experiences in Africa and what you learned uh, working in Africa. Well, it's actually pretty amazing. You mentioned I've been stationed in eight countries in Africa and across the continent from North Africa to West Africa. About the only place I haven't been is Central Africa. And I guess Uganda comes close to that. Uh, it's sort of East Africa, sort of Central Africa. But um, the insights I've learned over the years, it's, uh, you know, Africa is a big country. Ha, ha, ha. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a huge continent with very diverse population and a very large number of languages and different cultures and challenges. And of course, the history is fascinating for me as a both a historian and a political scientist. What I learned in Africa in many of these experiences is that a lot of people uh, still want to blame the past for what's happening today. There are things that happen in the past that certainly affect current circumstances. But at some point, six plus decades after independence for African countries, somebody has to stand up, and put their big, big boy pants on and say, hey, you know what? We own this. We're responsible for this. It's time to move forward. Uh, but we can we can deal with the legacies that may have had a negative impact in some places, but really that's not the cause of Africa's woes today. Now, having said that, I found some incredibly uh, well organized and run countries in Africa, and, and I found an awful lot that are just a total dumpster fire. Uh, but what I found is that regardless of whether someone is a an Arab or they're someone from the islands off the east coast of Africa or they're from West Africa, Bantu peoples in Southern Africa, or Afrikaners, English speakers, Portuguese. Most people I meet in Africa simply want to be safe, be prosperous, raise their children, have a family. And most Africans I've met, unlike Europeans, are people of faith. Whether that faith is Christianity, Judaism, or Islam, they really are people of faith for the most part. I mean, there are exceptions, of course. But uh, it's astounding how you know, my church, the United Methodist Church, just had a schism. It just split over the issue of gay pastors um, and homosexuality. And so the church that I'm with is no longer the United Methodist Church. It's now a church that has a large percentage of our members are African churches because they don't believe in that. I'm not advocating for or against the issue. I'm just making a point that Africans tend to be more conservative. Much more. Yeah. And I think that's lost in a lot of people. They think that Africans are very liberal when it comes to, to policies. And I think that gets confused with a lot of socialist movements in Africa and even communist movements. That doesn't make someone liberal. That makes them a communist or socialist. Well, uh, just to support what you're saying there, Frederick Chaluba is one leader who did make the observation when Frederick Chaluba went from prison to the presidency in Zambia after overthrow of Kenneth Kaunda's dictatorship in 1991. He made the statement, enough already. It's been 30 years since the British left. If there's anything wrong in Zambia now, it's our fault. 
we need to take responsibility. So at least one president I know spoke like that, and I'm, I'm sure there are a few others, but unfortunately not many because I think it's very convenient to have somebody to blame. Oh, absolutely. And, and if I can, if I can, of course, this is in your bailiwick. You know this quite well. I'm not sure how well the audience knows it, but the case of Rhodesia Zimbabwe. So in 1980, after the Lancaster House Agreement, which was Margaret Thatcher's, I don't want to deal with Rhodesia anymore, just force this thing and we're moving on. The world washed its hands of Zimbabwe. And of course, we saw what happened in Matabela and just three years after that with, I can never pronounce correctly, the Gukurunda. Yeah, Gukurahundi. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I've never, never been able to pronounce it Which is mean literally in Shona, the washing away of the dirt, the, the, yeah. the driving rain that washes away the filth, basically. Yeah, and so we saw some, no one knows the true number, but 10 to 20,000 end of Bailey executed at least at least at least yes but the world looked the other way because we've washed our hands of this problem and a similar situation in south africa the world looks at south africa through a lens of april 27th 1994 oh the rainbow nation south africa we're done it's not our problem anymore we don't care about south africa and they and, all lived happily ever after exactly and and so they're stuck in a time warp now back to the zimbabwe thing so from 1980 until 2000 there wasn't a major issue with the land, so to speak. There were issues with land. But the deal in Lancaster House was a willing buyer, willing seller basis for, for, for land in Zimbabwe. The designation of commercial farmland by the Zimbabwe government themselves, first under Prime Minister Mugabe from 80 to 88, then they changed the constitution and became president. So he was ousted in 2017. But Mugabe from 1980 to 2000, every land sale in Zimbabwe had to be approved by his government. I mean, if you had farmland in, outside Bulawayo, I couldn't just buy it. I had, they had first right of refusal. So they got to decide whether they bought it or not. So I, what I'm doing is deconstructing a myth here about this to show you how people still blame others. So the government of Zimbabwe could have bought any land they wanted, given it to war veterans and poor Shona and Nabele and San, you know, those, those people yeah. out there, Kalanga. They could have done that, but they didn't. For 20 years. For, for 20 years. And in fact, their first argument is, that, well, we didn't have any money, those British. Well, the British government gave Zimbabwe 63 million pounds in the aggregate, at least from 1980 to about 93. When John Major came in, they're like, we're not doing this anymore. Because who's getting the farms? Constantine Chiwenga, Sharon Spiri, Robert Gabriel Mugabe, all these thugs in ZANU, which became ZANU-PF after they wiped out Joshua and Coma's party. They were getting the farms, and they were just leasing them out and managing them. They weren't really using them for anything. So poor black Zimbabweans weren't advancing. That money was stolen, essentially, in my view. So in 2000, people said, why did, why did the farm invasions take place? Well, there was nothing left to steal. Zanu had pilfered the economy. They'd taken everything. The country was on the verge of bankruptcy. The Brits stopped giving them money in about 93, 94, somewhere around that time frame. And so there was nothing left to steal. So they went after the farms. And they still blamed others. But here's the thing, Dr. Hammond, and, and, and you may be aware of this. You probably are. You're pretty insightful in this. But 42% of the land designated as commercial farmland in Zimbabwe by that government changed hands at least one time from 1980 to 2000. So they could have bought at least 42% of the farmland outright. They had the first right of refusal. Yes. So the entire kith and kin and you know land stolen is a myth. And by the way, a fair portion of the commercial farmers that were in Zimbabwe in 2000 actually came into Zimbabwe after it became Zimbabwe. And that is ignored and forgotten. People who migrated into Zimbabwe purchased land legally after the government refused to buy it, and then they were attacked and their farm workers were attacked. So it's just an example of how people in Africa – well, the world over, but people in Africa, particularly with the colonial colonialism, want to blame someone else for their failures. The failures in Zimbabwe are wholly ZANU-PFs, not sanctions. There are no sanctions on Zimbabwe. That's another myth. I'll blow that apart. Never has been, no. except in days of Rhodesia. But yes. Zimbabwe, it was a few individuals sanctioned, not the country. That is in correct. fact, they were getting foreign aid. 
In fact, which United, is the very opposite of sanctions. The United States is the single largest donor to Zimbabwe. If it were not the United States, there would have been a few million people that starved to death in the 2008 time frame, and again after that for a potential famine. But we provide massive food aid, and we buy virtually all the antiretrovirals for HIV patients in Zimbabwe. There are facts that ruin a good narrative. You're correct. It really is a pain for these poor propagandists suddenly getting people bring up facts again and uh, very frustrating. Why must you bring the facts up? That that just spoils the narrative. Well, if I could, if you'd allow me, I, two stories that just ruin that narrative very quickly about South Africa specifically, since we're in South Africa. The first was uh, I was in Zerust in Northwest, and I was asked to speak to farmers. Uh, they didn't really tell me the subject or the location, but I know Zerust, so I guessed the right location. And then the subject was about rural security. So I went there and I spoke to the farmers and I really had to tell them who I was. They didn't, who's this American state if you're talking to us? So I explained who, who I was and my background. They were very keen and asked a lot of questions. But I think the real money in hay was made afterwards at the Bry when I spoke to people in small groups and talked about specific <coughs> things that people can do when it comes to, when it comes to security. Sadly, one of the farmers I met, Peter van der Westhuizen, was killed three days later. He was murdered. Now, the press briefly reported his death. They didn't tell you the circumstances or how or why he died. I've done that on my, my social media, which I cover as a journalist. And I'll share it with you right now with your audience. Peter van der Westhuizen, whose funeral was this past Saturday, he was in a community safety forum, former police officer, if I'm not mistaken. He was traveling out and there was a farm attack. They responded to a farm attack, which frequently happens, unfortunately. What the press won't tell you is the farm belongs to Daniel Salike. I'm sorry, is that an Afrikaans or English surname? Salike? No, it's not. It's a black South African because they're farmers. They don't care about skin color. They don't care. They care about protecting farms because they get what's going on. So that has not been reported in any source in South Africa except for alternative media, a few people on websites. And I know about it because I've become connected to the farming community in some ways. So that's the first one that defeats the narrative. White people hate black people. White people are racist. Well, then why are they responding and why did he give his life? to save a black farmer. That is disgraceful that that is not in the news on the front pages because that's how you unify a nation. You get rid of this nonsense that's being perpetrated by political frauds. So that but it interferes with narrative. It does. And so I'm defeating the narrative. You know, I, I, I tell people about myself, I like to subvert expectations. So people look at me and they see they see this uh, um Paul Kruger beard or Herr Maritz beard and, and they make assumptions. You know, I've been called a white monopoly capitalist. I'm waiting for my dividend check, by the way. It hasn't arrived. Uh, I've been called a KKK supporter. Really? I'm not a Democrat. That's who supports the KKK. <laughs> and uh, I've been called many things uh, by black racists and white liberals in South Africa. And um, it, none of it's true, of course. But the second story I'd like to share with you is this. I went to Durban. And I met up with Karu Charo. Karu Charo is the nickname of an Indian comedian who's well-known in Durban. And he's an activist, a social activist, among, the things, among other things. So he took me out into Chatsworth, into the neighborhoods. And, and, and this is important to him, and it's also important to me, because we're still dealing with the, the whole Phoenix-accused uh, situation in which people were accused of Indians of hunting down blacks during the ANC insurrection that took place last year in July. Mm -hmm. So we went there and we walked around these horrific informal settlements, absolute poverty, terrible conditions people are living in. Indians, Zulu, right next to each other. They're neighbors. They're not killing each other. But that'll never be reported in the Mail and Guardian. It'll never be reported in News 24. They'll never talk about that stuff because it defeats the narrative. They want a narrative of hatred so they can divide people. And that's what I'm doing. Confuse, divide, and conquer. I think I've heard this story before. Yeah, I, I think the commies like that one. They do. So, uh, Chris, in your 
travels around Africa and your analysis and study of Africa, what would you summarize as the main problems Africa is facing today? Well, um, <laughs> from the perspective of African governments or from my perspective, I think you mean from my perspective. So. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of the average citizen on the ground. Sure. I would say that the, the biggest challenges for Africa have to do, sadly, still with corruption. That's a major problem. And the corruption is pervasive in many countries, even countries where they have a good reputation. For instance, if you look at Transparency International's Corruption Index, that's kind of the gold standard if such a thing exists about identifying corruption. Like the list, Ukraine is the most corrupt country in Africa, in Europe, which it is. Um, but uh, when it comes to Africa, they'll say Botswana is, is, is high ranking. They're usually in the top 30 or something like that for, for not having corruption. Uh, right. Yeah, right, for, yeah. for being clean. That's yes, what I mean. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're highly ranked for not having corruption. But I lived in Botswana. There's corruption. Now, it's not the corruption you experience in many countries where people want a little bakshish, you know, the police stop you and expect to shake you down and give you some money, that sort of thing. That doesn't happen in Botswana. I mean, it's never happened to me. I live there and, and the police are honest and try very hard. This is my experience in Botswana. But there is corruption. And it's uh, from, from the standpoint of patronage and, you know, friends and connections. It's not legitimate when you get a contract because you know somebody in government. You mean sort of like the Biden... Pelosi, uh, top of corruption, <laughs> Ukraine. Well, well, yeah. well you, you it's can, not we what talk, you know, it's who you know. We could talk for days about Ukraine. Uh, I've actually, um, I think that uh, my analysis of that is still spot on, why it happened, how it happened, and what's actually happening there. You know, when, when Ukraine happened, I actually was traveling as an accredited journalist to the Conservative Political Action Convention in, in Florida, in Orlando. It used to be in Maryland, but Maryland's difficult to deal with, so they moved to Orlando because Florida is easy to work with. So... Also, we don't have to wear facial coverings. <laughs> so, so I went to Orlando, and when I arrived, it was a little bit delayed because there was a problem with my hire, my rental car, and sorting it out. They gave me a Mustang, and it was, I've never driven a Mustang before. So I was sorting that out. I got to my hotel after midnight, and then their key machine wasn't working. So it's like Africa, you know, <laughs> key machine wasn't working. So, so they had to go find the security guy because he has a master key, and he was running around this big estate there where they have it. It was part of the Hilton chain. So I got in my room but after 1 o'clock. I turned on the TV. I wanted to go shower, get the grime off me from traveling. And Russia's invaded Ukraine. So, whoa, I turned I turn up the volume. I turned my laptop on. And then they said, the president will speak in 12 hours. 12 hours? The leader of the free world? Wake him up. Give him some amphetamines. Give him some caffeine. He's going to speak in 12 hours. How many people will die between now and 12 hours? So that's just ridiculous. I mean, Trump, Obama would have been woken up. They would have been in front of the camera saying what was right and what was wrong. But anyway, so it kind of went from there. But uh, just I'll, very quickly, people ask me my opinion. So maybe we're going to get to that. What's my view? My view on the 23rd of February and remains to this day that, that uh, of course, you notice that, that Putin didn't invade Ukraine for four years that Donald Trump was president. Funny that. Isn't it? Yeah, but he did invade, occupy, and annex the Crimea under Barack Obama's presidency. So, and Biden was vice president. That's too. correct. And But during Trump's time, nothing happened. Nothing happened. And it's funny how the Democrats try to paint Donald Trump as an ally of the Russians, yet it's Hillary Clinton who had the ties to the Russians, and it's Joe Biden who has the ties to the Ukrainians. Anyway, I digress. But the point it's is- It's like that, they project their own crimes onto others. Do. Just like, you're a racist. Well, it's because the person saying it probably is the racist or the bigot. Yeah, it's 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 the tool of the weak mind. The ones screaming hate speech and intolerance are the most hateful, intolerant, intolerant people. Well, here. and if I could digress away from that, but we'll come back to it. You know, my experience is that, you know, we always hear this, that, that, that Christians are homophobic, that they hate homosexuals. Now, people I know of faith who are Christians- 
that's not been my experience. My, my faith is personal. I don't, I don't attend church regularly. That's, that's my personal thing. But, but my experience with people in the church, any church in the Christian faith is that they don't hate homosexuals. It may be considered a sin by people in, 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 in that faith. And if, if you think I'm reading this wrong, you can correct me, but they have compassion and love for their fellow man. And, and it's interesting because it's always the people on the political left who actually out homosexuals and treat people poorly and make rules and try to divide people. But anyway, I digressed away from the, from the Ukraine thing. Did I, did I get that wrong? Do you think? No, no, not at all. In fact, um, I must say in 1980s, none of us had any doubt that while we were fighting in Angola, Cubans and Angolans, we had no doubt that we were fighting the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union was using the Cubans and the FAPLA MPLA forces in Angola as their proxies mm -hmm. in a war to advance the Soviet objective. And, and the Cuban troops in 13 countries in Africa, and there was, they were all using Soviet weapons. And, and we had no doubt this was a war against the Soviet Union. And so today I look at what's going on in Ukraine, and to me it seems as crystal clear as anything. It's the United States and NATO waging a proxy war, utilizing the Ukrainians in a proxy war against Russia. And it seems to us from this perspective, this is now a war of globalism versus nationalism. Now, it's intriguing because for the first half of my life, Russia was the enemy. Mm. And it just seems very strange that now we look at Russia and we don't have the same kind of hostile views we used to have. I think if Ronald Reagan was making his evil empire speech today, uh, he would probably be identifying Washington, D.C. <laughs> as the evil empire. Well, listen, I cannot dispute uh, your analysis there whatsoever. You know, I, I've been saying since the outset that we are fighting a proxy war. The question is why? And, and, and my, my analysis is that it's a distraction. It's a distraction. People like, you know, the, the military industrial complex. Look, it's not that much money. $60 billion we give in Ukraine out of a, you know, a $6 trillion national budget and a $26 trillion economy. That's, that's, that's a rounding error. It's nothing. So it's not that. Um, to me, it's a distraction. I think they're distracting from what's really happening as they steal our liberty. They impress people. For instance, um, the Biden administration, and, and I haven't forgotten the other issue, but the Biden administration, well, let me, let me, before I do that, let me, let me just go back before I don't want to forget. So ultimately, the reason why I've told people in my assessment, and you can, you don't have to listen to me, but it's an informed position as a political scientist, as a historian, as a military officer who's done this for 40 years. My assessment from the beginning, because we don't really know what Putin's objectives are, even the people around him don't know. It's in his head. You know, that's the hardest thing to get his intent. My assessment is that he made the calculation that he would never find a better time and a bigger moron sitting in the White House than under Joe Biden. So the time to strike is now. And he's right. Look what's happened. Sanctions, it's a joke. He went to Beijing and Xi Jinping gave him a, a cushy deal, which gave him backstop. And so Russian coal, Russian oil, Russian cobalt, Russian timber, Russian wheat, all going to China. And China gets resources they need. And they just sit there and give back cover while they focus their attention on Taiwan and other things. So I think it's a big distraction. And I think the reason that he invaded was because there would be, never be a better time in his view. So that's that's where that was at. Now, from an African perspective, we have over 30 countries in Africa dependent on wheat coming Isn't from Ukraine and from Russia. Now, of course, bearing in mind there was a time that Africa was self-sufficient. There was a time that South Africa was self-sufficient. In 1994, when Mandela became president, South Africa had 70,000 commercial white farmers who produced enough food for 100 million people That's when correct. our population was 28 million. So we were effectively producing four times more food than we needed. And so South Africa was a major food exporter. But thanks to ANC policy and expropriation without compensation, all rest, we are down to less than 27,000 commercial farmers. I was farmers about to South say 28,000, yeah. So there you go. Around then. And uh, they're producing f enough food for 40 million, which is 
pretty impressive. But, but you have 60 million people. But we got 60 million people. <laughs> so not only can't we feed our own country into import, but all the other countries around us in Southern Africa that used to benefit from South African food now need other sources. And Russia and Ukraine provide a vast amount of food, especially wheat and fertilizers, for a vast amount of countries in Africa, like over 32 of the countries in Africa. So what we've got is we've got coming because of sanctions and because of war, we have a coming famine in Africa. And I believe this is also going to hit some parts of South America and other parts of the world. So one wonders where this all fits in the global reset uh, of World Economic Forum, that they want a great collapse before their great reset. Well, this is this is one area where you may be correct. And I think we're going to have to wait to see. Unfortunately, <laughs> waiting to see if people starve is not a good position to be in. But from, a, from an analyst standpoint, it was striking to me that about the 1st of March, we already started hearing that um, there were food shortages. Now, why in the world would there be food shortages and, and, and um, sunflower oil shortages and wheat shortages when it's wintertime in Ukraine and Russia and no one's growing wheat? It is in the soil they plant in the wintertime and it comes up in mm -hmm. the spring. But there's no wheat being harvested. So the wheat that's available in the marketplace has already been harvested in the previous season yes. and is in warehouses or in ships or it's being shipped around. So the war might stop shipments that were sitting in harbor. But predicting a, predicting a famine on the 1st of March is to me comical. Now, here's the other thing too. So I've just driven through the Western Cape the past week and everywhere I go, there's rapeseed, which if I'm not mistaken, produces canola oil, uh, and uh, which is something that 30 years ago, nobody even grew that stuff. It's all over Europe now and Germany and mm -hmm. down here. So rapeseed all over the Western Cape. And I saw wheat fields coming up in Northwest being watered from the, the, the Harpies Port Dam and lots of wheat up there. In fact, a friend of mine's farm I was on saw lots of it. And then lots of wheat down here. So South Africa's producing wheat. Now, I don't know if that's, I haven't looked at the stats, if that's an unusual amount or whatever, but South African farmers do the same thing most farmers do. We rotate crops. So ironically, this year in Pennsylvania, which is not a major wheat producer, we usually rotate maize, soybeans, and wheat to keep the soil fresh and change it around. Every field in central Pennsylvania is wheat. So there's going to be significant wheat produced in the Northern Hemisphere this year outside of Russia and Ukraine. So it is a major issue, I believe, for Africa, but that's kind of sad. And, and it's also self-inflicted to some degree. For instance, Sudan, you must sell your grain to the government. Well, the government's not buying grain, but there's wheat producers, small wheat producers who produced a bumper crop this year, and it's sitting around not under shelter, not in silos, in bags, laying loose for rodents to eat and for the weather to damage. And no one's talking about that. So I think it's a lot more complicated, but I think there's a potential issue for hunger, but it's all unnecessary in my view because there should be plenty of food. Well, socialism and mismanagement definitely does a lot of damage. Well, so you win that argument. <laughs> you've identified corruption as a ma massive pervasive problem. What other problems would you identify from your observations and travels in Africa? Infrastructure. Infrastructure. And the thing about infrastructure is you get this, this argument, and you're getting it now in South Africa, trust me. <laughs> I've had some fun with the infrastructure the past couple of weeks. But uh, it's, it, it's, it's always an issue. But the problem with Africa, from my perspective, is the following. And this is something I said for years, and, and now we see it in South Africa under this, this um, what I call racketeering organization, masquerading as a political party, the African National Congress. So build it and forget about it. Look. Africa, West Africa in particular, has had enough infrastructure to meet its electricity needs built over the past six decades by Western donors and Western governments. But what happens? Things get built and they get neglected. They're never maintained. There's no budget set aside for maintenance. It's not done. The work isn't put in. And it just eventually falls apart. 
And then people come screaming, we need infrastructure, colonialism. No. Yeah, for instance, the Akasambo Dam in Ghana should have produced all the electricity needs for Ghana, but it fails to do that because it isn't maintained properly. Also, there's insufficient rainfall. That's that's an exa exacerbating factor. But the point is that infrastructure is a disaster across Africa. You know, and we hear this about America all the time, infrastructure, infrastructure. Uh, Trump wanted an infrastructure bill and he didn't get it because the Republicans and the Democrats, they undermine his position. Uh, and then Biden comes in, he's a conquering hero because he gets an infrastructure bill. But the federal government's job isn't to build infrastructure, except for air traffic control, for military bases, things like that, and, and international highways. The responsibility for infrastructure is the state and county. We have a federal system and our system has been corrupted by the omnipresent, super huge Goliath of the federal government ever since the introduction mm -hmm. of the 16th Amendment in 1913, 1913, 1914, something like that. No, 1960s. Anyway, it was 16th Amendment, which gave the federal government the ability to tax our income. And since then, our federal government has grown out of control. If I'm not mistaken, you've got more federal employees in the U.S. government than any other country in the world. You've got the biggest bloated. I suspect China has more. Sales. Well, yeah, that's probably Hard to argue. Yeah. Um, no, but we, uh, our, our federal government... Certainly in the Western world, it's got to sure, be... Sure. I think we have about 1.2, 1.4 million federal employees. That doesn't include the military. And in the military, we have about 1.4 million active military. Stag staggering. Now, <clears throat> um, how would you evaluate from what you've seen across Africa uh, the ability of the African military, ability to handle external threats? Because we've got, for example, Mozambique, where it seemed the military primarily was there to beat up the opposition and intimidate the local people. But now they're facing, facing a real terrorist threat from an Al-Shabaab-affiliated terrorist group in North of Mozambique, and they don't seem to be able to handle it, and they need to bring in outsiders uh, to be able, even the Rwandans are there, and South African mercenaries to try and help. But uh, what is the problem that so many, South African so many African militaries don't seem to be able to handle real threats to their country? Well, that's a very complicated question, and I'll try to answer it in a quick fashion as best I can. The bottom line is that many African militaries are simply patronage places, or they're, they're jobs programs, um, and, or they're there to secure the regime. And very few African militaries are professional in the sense that they're there to protect national security, national sovereignty, the borders, and that sort of thing, and, and guard against internal insurrection. Um, so including the sand def, we can throw them in there too. But uh, there are exceptions. Botswana has professional military. Senegal has professional military. Ghana has professional military. Uh, there are a few others, but those are the ones that jumped to mind. There are also some huge militaries with some capability that aren't necessarily the best and have been embarrassed. The Ethiopian military is quite large, quite well-equipped, and they were embarrassed by the Tigrayan rebels. They nearly nearly lost the capital um, during that recent war, which is still ongoing. It's kind of a truce right now. And the Angolan military is quite large. It's exceptionally large for its size, a country that size. And now what I would say is that um, most militaries in Africa don't have the ability to self-deploy, but that's a global problem. The British military is a joke compared to what it once was, and it, it lacks the ability to deploy itself in many cases. And the French have those challenges too. Oftentimes they have to turn to us for lift capacity to move their troops and move their supplies around. Uh, there are very few militaries on the planet that can respond anywhere at any time with sufficient force. We're probably the only ones left today, but we, we pay a lot for that capability. Um, not that we want to be the world's global policeman, but it, it tends to be a role, whether it's tsunami relief or it's inter involving, in, inter intervening in insurrection. So back to your point about Cabo Delgado, <clears throat> if you look dispassionately at the history of Mozambique, I think it's fair to say that even under Portuguese rule, Cabo Delgado has largely been ungoverned throughout history. Mm -hmm. The Portuguese never really extended their control there. It was just in the, in, in the cities, you know, in Palma and places like that, and, and not much beyond that. 
And so it's not surprising. I, ironically, in when I was assigned to U.S. Africa Command from 2011 to 2013, I told the U.S. Africa Command in my analysis as a, the officer responsible for the region that uh, not as intelligence analyst, but just as the analyst for security and security assistance, that we have two problems in Mozambique. The first one is the, the Mozambique Straits are likely to become a target for piracy. And I was told that, you know, U.S. Africa Command doesn't ha it has limited resources, which is true. And, but I told my boss, who was a retired admiral, and then his boss, the two-star general, that you don't have to devote resources to make an issue a priority. What I mean by that is you can you can talk about the issue, you can draw attention to it, and you can get others to do something. And, and we didn't do that. And then within four months after I made that prediction, the first ship was was taken by pirates off the coast of Mozambique because it's not patrolled. The Mozambican military, the Navy, the only thing they had was a couple little boats, and, and they, they captured two Chinese fishing trawlers whose engines conked out. <laughs> so, so they couldn't get away. That's how they captured them. And then they, they just expropriated and made part of the Portuguese Navy. And, of course, they had the whole thing with – or not Portuguese, the, um, the, uh, the uh, Mozambican Most Navy. Weekends, yeah. The Mozambican Navy. And then they also had this whole thing where they tried to get these tuna boats thing, and that's a whole scandal. And so they have no maritime capability. And the South Africans, despite spending $7.1 billion in the arms deal, have no maritime capability. The diesel submarines sit down here in Simonstown in Port the cruisers or frigates, whatever you want to call them, they're categorized differently by different people. They can only put one at sea at a time, and so they can't really provide the assistance to go up there. So that was the first thing. The second thing I warned U.S. Africa Command about was that because Cabo Delgado is ungoverned largely, that it is a likely location, based on what I've been observing, for some sort of insurrection or an effort to um, piracy, on-land piracy, banditry, that's what I say, that sort of thing, lawlessness. And in fact, that's what happened. And I've been talking about the Cabo Delgado insurrection since 2017 when it started. And, you know, over a million people now displaced. And the reason for that is the FATM, the, the, the Mozambican military, wasn't doing anything to protect the people. It wasn't protecting the land and the police forces either. They were there to protect Total and their, their natural gas facility. That's what they did. So when Palma was attacked, they didn't go in there. They had over a thousand troops. They didn't go in there. So basically, a small movement which claims to be affiliated with with um, Al Shabaab. Mm. Uh, in my view, I don't think there really are. There, there's mutual, but there's, I don't think there's any real coordination based on what I've seen. But I don't have access to classified sources anymore. But based on my my view, these are a bunch of uh, really nasty people who are taking advantage of a situation, and some of them are quite ghoulish. I don't know if people. I don't mean to disturb people, but but I don't know if you saw the videos of where they were hacking black Africans to death and putting them in trolleys. And, and they were just joyously, it's just sick. So like Sierra yeah. Leone, Liberia. Oh, yeah, yeah, Sierra Leone when they're chopping hands off for the vote thing. Yeah, and, and what happened to Liberia as well. So the Cabo Delgado thing, what I said is that could have been resolved with less than a battalion of professional troops going in there. It was the same thing in the, in the Liberian Civil War. You know, it was utter nonsense. People running around naked, not wearing clothes, firing rifles sideways like they're in a, in a gangster movie. And all it would have taken is a reinforced Marine, U.S. Marine rifle platoon to end that war. And essentially, that's kind of what happened. That's kind of what happened. We didn't even send troops. We just put in the American embassy, and that brought people to the table, and the war ended. I think there was one British company that sorted out the problem in Sierra Leone at one stage. It was, it was a battalion minus. Yeah, so it was a little more than a company. So that's another thing that disturbed me. For years, people talked about the rough and Fodesenko and the horrible things happening. Their child soldiers, drugs, you know, limbs being hacked off. It's unbelievable what was happening in Sierra Leone. And it went on for years. And then all it took was the deployment of a British battalion minus, and in three weeks, the war was over. And so, you know, the generals in my military, by and large, I can't speak for all of them, but historically over the past two decades, they don't like to get engaged in foreign things. And, and I understand where they're coming from. But from my perspective, there is a time when it's right and moral and just, 
we'll be talking about that tonight, yes. for intervention by those who have the ability to do it. Rwanda was a case of that, in my view. A missed opportunity, indeed. Indeed. Oh. And, and I, we, we had orders, Dr. Hammond, in yeah. Germany. I was in aviation brigade with attack helicopters mm -hmm. and lift helicopters in 1994 when that happened. I think it was July, August time frame. And I was about to leave and go back to the intelligence advance course. We had orders. We were given a warning order to deploy to Rwanda to remove non-combatants and to intervene if necessary to stop the slaughter. And then we listened to the lies from the politicians, including Kofi Annan, who's hailed as a great hero. And of course- um, And it was Clinton's era and Clinton's, Clinton. Clinton's government basically shut down any attempt to do something. Well, let me put this in context for you. You may be aware of this. I, mean, I think a lot of people aren't, but Susan Rice, who I think is kind of the power behind the current regime, even though she's not in it, she was part of the Obama regime and she was also part of, of Clinton's era. She was working in, in, in the Clinton administration and they were sitting around a national security meeting. Now, this is a matter of record. It's been published in books because the Air Force officer who carried the nuclear codes and the football was present for the meeting. And she said, if we call it a genocide, what happens in the midterm elections? Now, that's the attitude they had towards 850,000 Africans. Our election results are more important than people's lives. Than people's lives. Yeah. True story. It makes me very heart sore, as South Africans like to say, about why I spent 36 years supporting and defending the Constitution when people like that, who are vile and repugnant, in my view, actually have the seats of power. It's, yeah. it's disturbing. Well, reading uh, General Romeo Delier's book, Shake Hands with the Devil, is a searing indictment on the United Nations itself and on the Clinton administration. And I might add on the French government of Francois Mitterrand, who also were accessories before, and during, and after the yep. Sadly, although uh, the French government, so much for signing anti-genocide treaties, they, to this day, are still keeping some of the architects of genocide under their own protection. That is true. If, if I can add something about that, I've met General Delier, um, and uh, he's a good human, but um, he's haunted by that experience. And, and I don't think he's entirely blameless. And, and I suspect in his heart he knows that. I, I take great exception to what happened to the Belgian paratroopers when they went to the residence and the Belgian paratroopers being held by these people. Um, in my view, he didn't make a great enough effort to get them. And then they were murdered after he left. Those were his troops. And they handed over the weapons when requested. Exactly. That, I can't imagine in I'm the middle at. of a war why you would ever order your men, why the officer in charge would have orders men to hand over the weapons to genocidal interharm by mass murderers. Srebrenica. Insane. Srebrenica, 1992. It was a 92, I think. I remember it's, I've covered these things and been involved in these so, for so long. <clears throat> 7,000 Muslim boys and men, kids as young as 11, shot and executed in the woods by the Serbs. The Dutch were there, peacekeepers. Now, here's the piece that people don't know about. The U.S. Air Force had F-16s flying air cap missions in support of the NATO mission there, or the U.N. mission, mm -hmm. excuse me. It was NATO and U.N. It wasn't, it wasn't. At that stage, it wasn't NATO. It was still UN, but they were flying. They were flying from Aviano Air Force Base. They were flying. I believe over it was a NATO operation. I'm well, it became a NATO operation in '95. I think this it was still a UN thing, but they were supporting. Them. So they were flying out of Aviano. There were F-16s flying over the air cap missions. Three times the Dutch peacekeepers asked for air support, and three times Kofi Annan and the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations denied air support to help them to get those people out. The Dutch surrendered. And they were tied to trees in international embarrassment. And the peacekeepers gave other weapons. And then they murdered 7,000 men and boys. Now, I know people from Srebrenica. It's what, shocking. What good is a UN peacekeeping operation if they can't protect the people under them? Absolute well, when, total disgrace. When the Brits were in Sierra Leone, the Sierra Leoneans started calling them the fireback because they were used to seeing troops that would come in and wouldn't shoot. When the Brits got shot at, they fired back. <laughs> and that's what you have to do.
Sorry, but that's how it has to work. Otherwise, there's no deterrence. Indeed. Now, as our time is running out, I'd like to ask your opinion on something else. Are you aware you're in the Cape of Good Hope and there's a, quite a growing movement for Cape independence? For your travels, do you think this is viable, advisable? Well, it's interesting, Dr. Hem, because a lot of people, I've interviewed people that, that work different organizations that are in favor of this and moving towards like the United Liberty Alliance, Hein Marx, Des Palm from Cape Exit, and Phil Craig from the Cape Independence Advocacy Group, and others. You and I have talked, I think, briefly about this in the past. And here's the thing, not, not you all, but but the, the public at large ask me these questions about, is it viable? Can it be done? Well, it has been done in the past. You know, and, and, and we have a situation where countries divide themselves peacefully. The Velvet Revolution in Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia split into two. And both countries are viable. They Without any violence. No. no violence whatsoever. And they're, they're, they're very amenable neighbors. They get along just fine. And you have Czechs that live in Slovakia and Slovaks that live in Czech Republic, back and forth. So that's been the case. Uh, of course, people bring up Catalonia, how that wasn't successful, but that's not resolved just yet. Just as well, because Catalonia, unfortunately, the communists took over the independence movement. And so the Spain government's got every reason to want to prevent having a Cuba in their backyard. No, absolutely. But there's there's... There are there are legal mechanisms for this. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is is an agreement that most countries have signed up to, and self determination is listed in there. The United Nations Charter addresses self determination. I'm not a legal expert. I'm just running through some of the documents here. South Africa's Constitution allows for self determination. There's a clause in there for it. Mm -hmm. So there are legal mechanisms for it. So from a legal standpoint, it can be done. Although a lot of people seem to think it's a pipe dream. Now, from a feasibility standpoint, you know, this is the question I always get. Well, what about the army? What about the navy? The South African Navy is in Simonstown. Well, I mean, if the Cape uh, gets independence, then they'll probably ask the South African Navy to either pay rent to stay in Simon's Town and make it a money-making venture like Djibouti does with military bases, or tell them to relocate to Port Elizabeth or Durban. You know, it's pretty simple as that. Uh, but how will we secure our borders? Well, there are plenty of South Africans who live in the Cape who've served in the military or served in the police who could form the nucleus to build a military and a police department overnight. Uh, it's a pretty simple thing to do. What about economically? Well, the Cape has light industry. It has it has um, it has a wine industry. It has a successful agriculture industry. It has high tech. It, it can survive just fine. The only nuclear power station in the sub-Saharan Africa. That's correct in Kuburg. Uh, although I worry about that station on a daily basis, but <laughs> under the current management. But uh, yeah, it, the, the Cape is perfectly viable. And it's the, the problem though is that the South African Parliament is located here, so they're going to have to move too. <laughs> that's not a problem. I'm just going. They're going to have to leave. But we do have three capitals. And that's that's true, Bloemfontein and, and Pretoria sure. in here. Um, and of course, Namibia used to be part of South Africa. They seceded without much problem. South Sudan is another example, the yeah. youngest country in the world since 2011, uh, independent. So obviously it can be done. And Eritrea broke away from Ethiopia. That's true. But so I, I don't, it can be done. Those are two examples I'd like to bring up because they, they involve violent conflict too. They, they, they did, yeah. but yeah. Namibia is a better example. Namibia is a great example. <clears throat> and I think the Czechoslovakia divorce is a very mm. good example as well. And it's not here. I mean, historically this has happened in many places. So... I think it's a non-starter when people say, but, 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 but. The legal mechanisms are there. The viability is obvious. Um, when you come to the Western Cape uh, and you can see the differences between what's happening here and what's happening in the rest of the country. Now, while I'm not a huge fan of the Democratic Alliance, I'm just being honest and transparent about that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not castigating them, but I'm not a huge fan for a number of reasons, which we don't have time to get into. But it's clear that under their governance, something different is happening in the Western Cape than is happening in, in Northwest, in the Free State, and in Pumalanga, and in KZN, especially in KZN. KZN is a dumpster fire. It's a total disaster. It's really sad. In fact, um, 
you know, the, this last election, I don't know if we have time to get into that, but the last election, you know, it's interesting because uh, the only real party that did well in that was the Freedom Front Plus. They gained 276% more voters. But unfortunately, they're a very small party. And, you know, it's interesting, they're always painted as this right-wing party. But if you look at their party platform, I prefer that to the term manifesto. That sounds commie to me, but South Africans like to use the, the manifesto term. But if you look at their platform, almost everything they believe in is either centrist or a little bit to the right. And based on some things based on faith, but they're not a right wing party in the, in the idea that what people think of them. The problem is that so many other parties in South Africa, other than the African Christian Democratic Party, have gone so far left that they look like the right wing. But that's the election. But as far as Cape uh, Secession, I think it's viable. I, I don't. Is it wise? I, I can't answer that question. Uh, I know a lot of people in the Cape uh, think it's wise, and and maybe they're right. Uh, maybe well, they're wrong. Many of us regard it no longer as a matter of choice. I think. Cape Independence was always a good idea, but now it's basically a matter of survival. And I think uh, what's convinced us is expropriation of our compensation bill from the ruling party. Which and is the, back again, isn't it? And Well, they're trying. And the absolute chaotic shambles uh, July last year, 2021, in KZN, where the army and police were standing back doing nothing. And if it wasn't for the homeowners and the local community groups and uh, the armed citizens. Uh, even police stations would have been overrun. It was citizens, armed citizens, who prevented a complete and total meltdown of, of KZN. KZN, it, it was basically two factions of the ANC waging war against one another with everyone caught in the crossfire. And what a disaster. And that greatly increased people saying, well, we don't want that to happen to Cape. We need to secede. So every failure of government, power failures, water failures, Everything that breaks down uh, just increases people in the Western Cape saying, we don't want that here. We'd better preserve what we've got. So it's moved from a good idea to a matter of survival. It's like you go down with the SA Titanic or you launch out in the, in the little ships. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because on the 12th of September, I'll be at Somerset West and there'll be a, uh, a panel discussion there with Dr. Kenneth Nishway from the ACDP, Dr. Peter Hernevald from the Freedom Front Plus, and now Athel Trollope. Uh, I started to say DA, but apparently it's Action SA for Athel Trollope these days. And myself, we'll be talking about the future of South Africa. I told people that, you know, the pace of my tour to South Africa this time has been quite intense. Uh, it's quite, quite tight schedule for a month long, all over the country, seven of the nine provinces, speaking engagements, meet and greets with my viewers. Uh, and, and interviews of so many people. I interviewed Nas Bota, Victor Matfield, Joel Stransky, uh, Chris Pappas from the DA, all of that. And I haven't had a chance to catch my breath. I'm thinking on the 12th of September when I go to this panel discussion, it'll end quickly because it's about the future of South Africa. So um, water circling the drain and end of story. No, I mean, it'll be a little more complicated than that. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a really sad state of affairs and it, it's, it, it breaks my heart. This country has, as a country, incredible human capital, incredible natural resources, unbelievable, stunning beauty, and it had world-class infrastructure. Now, not for everyone, let's be honest. There were, not everyone had it access to it. Yes, growing but, on every level, but, all, yes, positively. But, but all of that had normal growth occurred, 6 to 8%, which is a little higher, but South Africa could achieve that over the last 30 years. Had that happened, then you wouldn't see these informal settlements to the level you see. You wouldn't see people cutting down power cables and cutting railroad lines and stealing the rails and stealing the cables because the country would be more prosperous. But instead, it's it's gone the opposite direction. What they unfortunately have done, the ANC, is they have, I think in the view, in my view, they have actually confirmed what some races said, that, that some races said blacks can't lead governments. I don't agree with that. Black Africans can lead governments. But it really just confirms what, what some racist once well, said. it certainly proves communists can't run Well, there you go. That's probably a better answer. And, uh, communists certainly can't run countries, no, yes. And we, well, they we, run them in the ground. 
<laughs> they, they do indeed. And, you know, to take Rhodesia, which was the breadbasket of Africa into the basket case of Zimbabwe, and the ANC took the most first world industrialized advanced nation Africa that pioneered heart surgery and a whole range of things. Christian Bernard, right down the yes. street here. And to think they've turned it into a place where they can't keep the lights on and uh, there's garbage in the streets. and Well, that's embarrassing. And uh, literally... Uh, shacks and squatters uh, on railway lines stopping railways operating. I mean, can you imagine? We're the first-class railway system. So, yes, there's no doubt government is failure. And you've noticed the middle letters of cancer is ANC. <laughs> well, I do call them the cancer. But, you know, very quickly on, on the electricity thing, I've got to say that it's – I think it find, it's incredibly embarrassing. A country that was about 34 million in the early 1990s produced virtually nearly half of the electricity generated in sub-Saharan Africa. For a continent at the time that had 750 million people, just 34 million people, and the lights can't be kept on here. I've now experienced load shedding twice in Port Elizabeth mm. and also experienced it in the Mahalisburg. Well, do you know, uh, in 1965, Kariba was producing more electricity than the whole of Zimbabwe is producing now. And the population was a fraction of what it is now. Well, our time is up. How can people get hold of you, Chris? Well, thank you, Dr. Hammond. Uh, you can find me on YouTube, uh, Chris Wyatt Africa, W-Y-A-T-T, -T, Chris Wyatt Africa. And I'm on all the social media, uh, lots of other sites. But that's the first place to find me, at least until YouTube censors me again. I do a daily news program, and I do it unlike anyone else in the world. My news program starts with South Africa. That's my locus when I start. I take the news stories, the headlines, and then I break it apart and tell you what the propaganda is coming from News 24, Daily Maverick, and all these other sites. And when they're honest, I report that as well. And I give my analysis from my experience, and then I go on from there to the rest of Africa, SADAC, East Africa, Central, North Africa, West Africa, and then the world, the hotspots, Myanmar, people have forgotten about Tigray, Ukraine, and then I get back to the U.S. That's my daily news program, Chris White Reports, every day, 6 p.m. South African time on Chris White Africa. Outstanding. So Chris White Africa, uh, thank you so much, Chris. And uh, tonight you're at uh, the Reformation Society Speak on right, moral and just in the face of tyranny, injustice, and moral decay. And if people go on to the www.frontlinemissionsa.org, you will be able to uh, view the presentation that we're going to video tonight, God willing. And uh, great to have you, Chris. Thank you so much. God bless the rest of your tour around South Africa, and especially that uh, special panel meeting coming up on the 12th. Thank you very much, Dr. Hammond. God bless and good night. <laughs>